Good morning, Christ Central. I am Karen McNary, and I'm one of uh, the women shepherds. And I think I'm going to need to upgrade my eyelash glue if we keep worshiping like that. <laughs> Amen. So this morning, I'm going to be reading from Ecclesiastes um, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 13 and 14. And it reads, These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. When we don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. Verses 13 and 14. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. My name is Josh Kim. I'm assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church. And I'm going with the theme, after worship like that, you read verses like this, and you realize, is anything meaningless? You know? And... Um, um, this scripture really speaks to us in many ways, doesn't it? As we think about what it means to live in light of what God has called us to be. This morning, we continue our sermon series in our American Idols series. And the topic that I want to cover this morning is the American dream. The American dream. Health, wealth, prosperity. Right? Health, wealth, prosperity. Perhaps when it boils down to it, American dream can fit into these three words. And what makes it so enticing is that the American dream says you can attain it, especially for those who are willing to work hard and take advantage of their opportunities. There is this expectation of prosperous and fulfilling life that this dream promises. Mark Rank, in writing his book on chasing American dream, says, American dream is embedded and found throughout our culture and history. It lies at the heart of Ben Franklin's common wisdom chronicled in Poor Richard's Almanac, in the words of Emma Lazarus etched onto the Statue of Liberty, the poetry of Carl Sandburg, or the soaring oratory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It can be heard in the music of Aaron Copeland or jazz innovator Charlie Parker. And it can be seen across skylines from Manhattan to Chicago 
to San Francisco. And he goes on to say, yet it can also be found in the most humble of places. It lies in the hopes of a single mother struggling on a minimum wage job to build a better life for herself and her children. It rests upon the unwavering belief of a teenager living on some forgotten back road that one day he or she will find fortune and fame. And it is present in the efforts and sacrifice of a first-generation American family to see their kids through college. So as we begin to tackle this idol, we have to understand how the idolatry works for us. So when we talk about this hope, this desire, the growth, the opportunity, or even a nice house with a fence and a dog and a car, or even health, wealth, prosperity, of in it itself, it is not wrong for us to want and desire that. As in the promise of American dream of in it itself, it's not a wrong concept. Please hear me on that. But just as we sometimes attach these three words, health, wealth, prosperity, to the gospel and make it the ultimate thing in life, then it becomes a false teaching for us So when our dreams, our desires are only attached to health, wealth, prosperity, and that house, that opportunity, the status, the desires, when these dreams are tied only to a nation or to a country and not God's kingdom, then what we call an idolatry begins that replaces God at the center. And then chasing the American dream becomes an American idol that we must acknowledge and fight. So the question is, how do we unpack this idol this morning? For that, we turn to the scripture that we read this morning. After all, it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1-9, history merely repeats itself. It has been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Well, years ago, there lived a man who stood at the pinnacle of the ultimate dream of the people at the time. Perhaps we could call it the Israel dream. Right? A kingdom built on the promised land. Influence, power, wisdom, man, you name it. Health, wealth, prosperity, indeed, unmatched. The writer of today's scripture, most likely King Solomon, speaks wisdom to us about chasing this idol. Why? Because he did it. In Ecclesiastes, is what we call a wisdom book. And what is wisdom? One author defined it as an art of living well. And I would add, living well as you were created to be. So I invite you this morning, church, to sit under King Solomon, a teacher. He calls himself a teacher. In other versions, a wise person. In other places, collector of wisdom. And also, I would add, someone that experienced, lived it, and telling us his own experience as well to tell us about what it means to chase after this false idol and fall short of it. And his conclusion, after achieving all that he desired on this earth. So what's the first thing he tells us here? He tells us it's merely a folly, foolishness, meaninglessness. Hence, the first point is the folly of chasing after the dream. Folly of chasing after the dream. 
If you're following the news, today is the closing ceremony of the Winter Olympics. And as an Asian American man, what a Olympic this is. It's like a dream come true for me, right? I'm looking at this and I'm watching Chloe Kim, Korean American snowboarder, winning the gold medal. Not to forget Nathan Chan, Chinese American gold medal winning world record setting figure skater. Talk about a dream come true. I looked at my wife and said, okay, when are we going snowboarding? Like, we just need a chance for my son to show that he is a prodigy. Like, we just got to try it, right? We see the representation up there. So there's joy in seeing this representation that's happening for us. But there's another side to this. You know, it is well chronicled that after becoming the youngest snowboarding gold medalist at Olympics, Chloe Kim went through a massive depression at the pinnacle of her career, right? As they say, a sudden fame that took away her freedom. Racist comments made to her because of her ethnicity in mostly white dominant sport. Not to mention the overwhelming pressure to be perfect. It got so bad to the point where she ended up throwing her gold medal in the trash can temporarily. All of this led to her leaving the sport for a while to find a normal life, as she said. Surely it wasn't as perfect as she thought. It wasn't a perfect end to the American dream as many thought to be. Solomon says this about life, chasing the fulfillment in this life. Verse 2, very simply, he says everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth never changes. Sun rises, sun sets, hurries around and rises again. Wind blows south and turns to north. Around and around he goes, blowing in circles. Reverse run to the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again into the river and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is new. Sometimes people say, here is something new. But actually, it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, in the future generations. No one will remember what we're doing now. Quick test for us is, do you remember your great-great-great-grandfather's name? Probably not. Basically, here, Solomon is listening, preparing his listener with the grand conclusion he experienced in his life, a collective wisdom from the get-go. Everything is meaningless. It says vanity, folly, a mist, weightless endeavor. The key word here is under the sun in verse 3. Here is a man who chased that Israel dream and sat at the pinnacle of it all. Everywhere the people wanted to be, he was at it. As a gatherer of wisdom, experience, power, he had it all. But the conclusion, he says, is it is absolutely meaningless. He describes the meaninglessness of human endeavor in verse 3. And he laments the continuing nature of meaninglessness in verse 4. In verse 5 through 7, we just read, he talks about, he looks at the nature that surrounds you, the majesty of it all, and how it works, but in that alone, you can't even find meaning and satisfaction in it. Verse 8, he says, all things will be wearisome. And continues on to say, even fulfilling our deepest desires will end up becoming meaningless for you. Verse 9, he says, the progress that we make. Verse 10, inventions, all meaningless. And verse 11, it comes to the full circle, no legacy. Not for the next generation, as they will forget you. No lasting impression. All are meaningless. Man, he sounds a lot like a pessimist, doesn't he? 
Doesn't he sound like someone that's just complaining about life? But wait a minute. You and I can relate to this, can you not? In 2014, just shy of 60% of the people resorted to be happy in their coupledom. Meaning, there's just 60% of you are happy in your marriage. Down from 65% just two years earlier. In one global study, they actually said 14% of the people, married couple, are truly happy. The marriage was not all that it was intended, all that it was pictured to be for them. In 2016, Pew Research stated on the whole, just over 50% of the American workers are satisfied in their job and only 30% are extremely satisfied, meaning more than half or just about half is not happy and they just work to get by. And I guess that number is a lot higher these days, especially with the great resignation during the pandemic. The recent survey show from the American Psychological Association found that the 75% of parents with kids under the age of 18 says they could have used more emotional support during the pandemic. And 48% of parents say their stress increased during the pandemic. And just look at the world today. What has this pandemic revealed to us? What has shown us before? What we have thought that we valued, what we longed for, we chased after, we realized it was not that worth it after all. The great resignation is here. Many are questioning, is my life really worth it? Do what I believe, what I say I believe, does it really worth it? The job that I do, does it really bring value to my life and to my family? Is it really worth it for me to put all my life and time into it? Everything is meaningless. Sounds a lot like Solomon, doesn't it? And Solomon is telling us, you don't need survey to tell you that. Just read what I said, right? I'm a collector of wisdom. You don't need no pandemic to tell you that. I t- I've been telling you this for thousands of years. You just didn't read it. Right, I get all that wisdom. I lived that experience and I tried it, and this is it. And what he does in after verse 11, afterwards, in chapter 1, 2, 3, all this stuff, he pursues his satisfaction. He said he tried it. In education and wisdom, in the rest of chapter 1, he says it's meaningless. In chapter 2, he lists his attempt to find all his satisfaction in seeking pleasure of drink, laughter, sex, relationships, and work, and possession, having things, owning things, and all that, he says, is left him wanting throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. C.S. Lewis aptly summarizes this again in Mere Christianity by saying, we find in ourselves desires which no experience in this world can ever satisfy. We find ourselves desires which no experience in this world can ever satisfy. So here is the folly of us chasing after this American dream as an idol. Again, dream in itself is not wrong. We all want health wealth, prosperity. We all want the hard work to pay off. We love the rags to riches stories as we should. But if this is the only thing that we pursue in our life, if we place our only and ultimate hope and security in it, then you will ultimately be found wanting at the end. That vacation will not be good enough for you. That family will not be good enough for you. That status, that paycheck will not be good enough for you. And when you face the factors of the reality that we face today, it is all the more depressing. American dream talks and touts of anyone who works hard to achieve it. However, the reality is not everyone has an equal opportunity. The race, class, gender has loomed large in terms of who has access and opportunity. The studies on economic disparity have shown that four-fifths of U.S. population is a significant risk of economic vulnerability at some point in their lifetime. The income disparity, it is higher than ever before. 
the top CEOs who was getting paid 42 times the average worker is now getting paid well over 400 times today. Just look at what's happening with Apple's Tim Cook's pay and the upload that comes with it. And I'm still using the Apple product that I pay a little bit too much for. You know, I'm guilty of the participation as well, I know. When we discuss this, some might push back. You know, when we talk about American dream, right? Some might push back and say, well, pastor, then go back to your country. I heard that before, really, I heard that. Isn't that crazy? As if I don't belong here, right? As if I don't love my country in talking about this. But more often than not, many might push back and say, well, America is much better than out there. And I say, yeah, you're right. But also that exposes our idolatry of our nation. Where in the Bible talks about that as our ultimate goal. When we want to preserve what we have, when many around the world are not even close to what we have, it actually reveals a lot more of your heart than not. Did you see what Solomon said? Under the sun. Here is a man who lived a ultimate theocracy, right? Israel, the greatest nation for them, fulfilling the Israel dream, who says, you will find no meaning in it just because you belong here. Even if America becomes truly a Christian nation, that's not it. You will not find fulfillment in it. There's a video on YouTube by Open Door USA. Open Door is an organization that works with persecuted church. It highlights persecuted church in North Korea. Google it, watch it. I mean, I'm not going to show it to you, but it's moving. One of the most impoverished, persecuted nations in the world, it is estimated over 3.5 million people died of hunger. Let us sit there and think about this for a second. 3.5 million people died of hunger. Not COVID, of hunger. The video is a testimony of a believer, a sister in North Korea. And this video is moving, guys. It's maddening. If you watch it, your emotions will rise like mine. It's so sad. Tears will flow, and they're starving, ostracized, threatened. Their Bibles are burned once it's found. They're physically, emotionally beaten down. And she says this halfway through, and you're not ready for this, right? But she says this. This is a persecuted belief in North Korea. She says, from your perspective, brother, our suffering must appear as though we lived a cursed life. However, we see it as a blessing because it is a shortcut to the Father. But yet, brother, I have one more request, that you send our gratitude to those who continue to pray for us. In return, we will stay healthy and persevere and continue to spread the gospel throughout North Korea. Church, Christians, followers of the way, as we say, what is a blessed life? What is a definition of blessed life as a believer of Christ, of the kingdom of God? And what is a cursed life? What is your definition of cursed life? Here, Solomon reminds us, the teacher reminds us, there's a folly in chasing after the dream, if that's all that there is for us to chase. But there is hope, right? There's always hope in Christ, isn't it? In our folly of chasing after our idols, our God does not give up on us. Hence, our second point today is hope of being chased 
in our dream, hope of being chased in our dream. When we think of King Solomon, what do we normally think about? Perhaps we only remember him as a wise king, king who built the temple that was so grand, the later generation, when they rebuilt the temple, they cried because the previous generation saw how great it was, and that the second one was like, oh, that's not that great. Remember how great it was, right? They cried when they built a building because such a great building. We also remember, if you, are, you went through Sunday schools and whatnot, Bible stories of how he dis- ruled these two women with a disputed baby, right? Remember that story? Like, cut the baby in half. They're like, no, 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 no. And they say, wow, what a wise king that is. And we decide to name our children and all the children in the world, Solomon, 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 right, because of that. To, well, because we want them to be wise. Not that my son was named Solomon. Um, we also know that he had peace all around. He had large territory. Dignitaries around the world came to him and can visit him, and they were amazed at his wisdom and walked away. And even perhaps after today's passage in Ecclesiastes, we may have sympathy for a person who strived after the fleeting dreams only to be found empty, a teacher, a renowned teacher perhaps. But a careful study of Solomon's life overall tells us a deeper insight into his life that's very different than sometimes what the world portrays him to be. Yes, you see the wisdom he gains. The conclusion that he comes to just doesn't come at that. It doesn't just come at, well, I tried it and I failed. It's not an innocent picture of a man working hard and not finding fulfillment in it. Rather, if you study the life of Solomon, what we see is his pursuit of these dreams, as he says, turned him to an idol worshiper. First King 11 tells us plainly, he loved many foreign women. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Furthermore, in verse 4 of 1 King 11, in Solomon's old days, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being faithful to the Lord, his God. But that wasn't everything. With the wealth, he built high places of worship, idols for his wives and others. He imposed heavy taxes and ruled them harshly. He misused his power in giving away land to kind of use it as his own property. He paid off his debt. He killed his half-brother. Out of threat, fear of threat, he pursued the Israel dream, but he wasn't all that innocent in doing so. And I think when we often think about, okay, Solomon's idol worshiper, so he built idols. So right? we're thinking wooden statues, like other religions, the cults, the buildings and whatnot. But if we have studied it thus far in our sermon series, idolatry, idol worship can easily be masked by seeing even good things turn into the ultimate things. Desire for love can become an idol. Acceptance can become an idol. The land, the wealth, health, prosperity, if you put that as ultimate thing, can become an idol. You name it, you could easily worship these things, and Solomon has done these things. And Solomon is seen as chasing after them, and his heart is given in those areas, and he is deemed an idol worshiper, idol worshiper in First Kings. So what happens to him? What happens to him? Do you know what happens to him, church? There are consequences to his actions. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9, the Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart has turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. You know, sometimes we pray, God, show me, show me your face, right? Show, show us you, who you are. Look at this. Like, that's not everything, right? He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. Sometimes we also say, God, tell me what to do. I'm like, right here, right, right here. And God's like, listen. 
but we often don't listen to the scripture that God gives us. This is what Solomon does too. So now the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. And if you follow the rest of the story in 1 Kings and beyond, this comes to fruition. The kingdom is divided, but here is where the grace of God chasing after Solomon and his descendants comes into place. After the consequence of his actions, this is what God tells him in verse 12 and 13 of 1 Kings 11. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you are still alive. That's personal grace in that. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. Church, this is where we see God's grace at work, being chased after God in our false pursuit of our idols. Yes, there are consequences to his actions, but that does not deter God from keeping his promise he made to King David and his throne that will last forever in 2 Samuel 7. It does not deter God from keeping his promise he made to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation. It does not deter God from keeping his promise he makes in Genesis chapter 3 that God will send a deliverer. And God, in fact, keeps his covenant faithful promise, and Jesus still comes in line of David. God, even in our failures, even in Solomon's failures, still chases and finds Solomon and finds his people in it. Church, God is ever chasing us in our sins. Do you know that? He came to die while we were still sinners, the scripture tells us. So you and I may have life in it. We as natural idolaters cannot help but to chase after idols. But in Christ Jesus our Lord, you are a new creation, the Bible tells us. Because you can't do it, he's going to do it in you. Reborn so that now you could chase after Christ above all. As we often say in our testimonies, it is not that you found Christ, God found you. Church, we don't know exactly when Solomon writes Ecclesiastes here. It doesn't really say, like, this is when I wrote it. But it's safe to guess that this is probably written at the end of his earthly life. Because after all, if you're going to do all these things, you need some time, right? To chase after all these things. I tried this. It didn't work. It's not like he tries for one day. He tries it for a while. He had like 700 wives, right? Um, And 300 congregants. Even building those buildings itself would take lots of time. So it's safe to guess that probably this is at the end of his earthly life. After all, you need it. And here is concluding matter. Again, wisdom. And the question is, are we going to learn? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 through 14 says, well, that's the whole story, guys. Right? Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. For this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Basically, what Solomon's telling you and I, a wisdom, is know who you are and know who you're meant to be. God is God, and you're not. God is God, and you're a creature. And when you and I recognize this and sit under God's grace, 
sit under his judgment by grace of God in Christ, you will find his hope, his promise, his fulfillment, and actually you'll be found by your creator, your God. There's nothing new under the sun because God is the creator who made it all. Know who God is, and if you know that, you know he is loving God who is forever chasing after you, and the goal of life is being found by your creator. And that's the conclusion Solomon draws to this morning for us. The other day, I was talking to my son who told me he, he's been learning about redemption and heaven at our awesome Sunday school with our lovely volunteers. Do you know that? Your children, they're not here with us right now, but they're in there learning about redemption and heaven. I was like, really? Wow, right? I was stumped. And he asked the question to me. He's like, can I see God, Daddy? I was like, what? Uh, can you see God? And I was stumped by that, right? I was thinking about all the theological answers I accumulated throughout the years, seminaries, the books, you name it. I was thinking, should I call Pastor Howard? Like, how do I do this? Should I triage this in the middle of the night? Um, how can I explain this concept? Should I call um, Aaron McFadden and be like, how do we do this, you know? I was thinking, like, what can I do? And I was thinking, I had no answer for him, right? How do I explain this wisdom? None of the wisdom, none of the degrees can answer how can you see God? I mean, there's theological answers. I'm not saying there's no theological answers, right? But so simply, I think this is God's grace. I just said to him, let's pray. For a 70-year-old who wants to see God face to face, who cannot conceptually grasp the spirit, all this stuff, right? So we said, let's pray that God will show himself to you. And in some sense, it was my cop-out answer, but it was the answer, right? We pray. We say, God, show yourself to my son somehow. I pray this too, but, you know, God, pray... Answer, your, answer the prayers of your child. The other day, I picked him up from school, and as we were walking home, he said, Daddy, Daddy. I said, what, son? I had a dream. I had a dream of heaven. And I said, what did heaven look like? It was awesome. Lots of clouds, right? I said, do you see God? I said, yes. Really? Like, all right, what did heaven look like? Are you like Paul, the third heaven? You know? Like, what is it? It's like, oh, yeah, God looks like someone from Jesus' storybook Bible. The horns, you're getting that Bible, so, you know, Stella might say that too one day. Um, And he said, what does church look like? He said, it looked like gold. I was like, yes, got it right, you know? And he also said, what did our house look like? Silver. I'm like, oh, dang it. Like, and I told Lynn, I'm like, we might have to work a little bit harder to get the gold house, right? Maybe uh, God doesn't really like us too much. I mean, anyway. But, you know, church, God answered. I was just floored, you know? God chased him in his dream. Not the wisdom of the world. Not the craziest theological answer I could come up with, all the degrees, all that you may. God simply met him. God simply chased after him. Church, this is what you're meant to be. Creature, a childlike heart, sitting at the feet of Christ. C.S. Lewis, following the earlier quote, says in, this, in Mere Christianity, if I find myself a desire which no one in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not mean that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to suggest the real thing, that those longing in their hearts are meant to point us to something else and point to our ultimate creator. Church, this was a very difficult sermon for me to prep. 
Why? Because I talk about the American uh, dream as an idol. And some people might say, well, you're not American enough, right? You know, I heard that. Some of that fear is there. Sometimes the ostracization, the marginalization is always there. Um, Or if I don't paint it in very negative light, then some might say on the other side, you're too conservative. You're a sellout, right? Because there's some fear in that as well, of course. But more than all those things combined, it's one of those things. I'm preaching this to you, but I'm the worst them of all. All type of thing, right? Because I'm an idolater. I chase this dream. I'm in many ways have and continue to do so. And especially as an Asian American, not speaking of everyone, of course. Again, I'm not the sole representation of this entire people, right? So please don't do that. But even I falsely often embrace the model minority myth to get to health, wealth, prosperity. And boy, it hurts. Just think about how meaningless it is and how we continue to chase after it and making it ultimate end, resting in it, and continuing to come up short in the midst of it all. But there's also other side of grace that I find in my story, in the story of our nation in our world today. I was having a conversation with my immigrant parents my dad, especially after men's event last year when we talked about our relationship with our father. And I remember thanking him for all that he has done in my life. And he basically shared with me he has done nothing for me. He was saying, he was lamenting the fact that he was never able to achieve American dream by any of material standards. Even the health as their health suffered under many hours of work and toil. We don't have a home, investment, We have nothing to their name. So in many ways, they have, quote-unquote, failed to achieve it. Only achievement was their kids got educated, quote-unquote, got a better life as a result of it. They didn't achieve their American dream, but they were saying, but you are the product of my dream. The question I have to ask was, who paid for that? who pay for all that I get to enjoy today. It's my parents. It was not like they got it for free. It's not like we got it for free. We didn't win a jackpot or got a lottery ticket. I'm not talking about hard work pays off. That's not what I'm saying, right? But someone has to pay the price for it. Someone paid it. My parents did. Often with their health, their tears, their pain, their suffering, being marginalized, being stripped of dignity, microaggression, blatant racism, exploitation, abuse, you name it. They endured the ugly side of it all and paid for it, so I benefited off of it. That is the story of my American dream. And what we must remember, church, you and I are in this nation. No matter if you or I participated directly or not, It is a historical fact that this nation, our beloved nation, is built on the backs of free exploited labor. Free slave labor was a significant part of building up of this nation's wealth. And I'm not here to make you feel guilty about it, but it is a plain fact. It is our history. This is my story, your story. Black history is our history. 
And if anyone should understand that, Christians, we should understand that. Right? Because think about it. What is gospel? What do we preach in the gospel? Christ crucified. Someone paid the price for my sin. Jesus paid the hefty price. If at all, we should definitely understand there's a price for our salvation. If I'm just preaching the gospel, church, I'm preaching Christ crucified. Someone paid the price for my sin. Someone paid the price for your sin. And if I'm preaching the gospel, I better talk about the price someone paid for it. So what does that mean for Christians, for church today, for us? How do we live in light of this? Again, we turn to the gospel truth. How are you and I to live with the gospel? We go and preach the gospel. We embody what it means to live in light of the gospel. Christ crucified. Someone pay for it. Live like it. That means when we love our neighbors, we live in the reality of bearing this burden of our history with others, especially in the church of Christ. Especially we rub shoulders with one another. Are you, church, willing and wanting to bear this burden together? Are you willing to see another's history in your life? Are we willing to repent together? Are we willing to stand together? Are we willing to care and see one another in this? Are we running away, protecting my health, my wealth, my prosperity, my conscience, my story, my future? And oh, you thought being a Christian was easy, right? If you feel like, oh man, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't, we often say that's great because that's what theologians call it total depravity. You can't really do anything right, right? (laughs) But church, what comes after total depravity? Do you know? Unconditional election. Unconditional grace. Love of God. So when you're at a place where you are completely at loss, that you can't do anything to make it right, then what do you do? Get to the second one. Unconditional grace of the Lord. This is why what we do here the word of God that we read, the singing songs that we sing, the communities that we're in is so important, isn't it? Because you and I need to be found in our dreams as we look to the Lord, and the word of God must transform us, find us, make us chase after his dreams. If this gospel that frees us to love one another, to see each other's pain, one another's suffering, this is what it means to serve and to strive for a new dream that Christ gives us. What is that new dream? The new earth, the new heaven that you ought to dream to long for. When I think of Revelation chapter 7, I don't just think of different people, groups standing together and singing Kumbaya. Uh Because now we all are unified because Jesus showed up. I'm not saying that Christ Central is a perfect church or the picture. We're far from that. I'll be the first one to testify to that. But we're trying, right? We know how much effort you and I need to stand together in this, especially in the climate that you are in today. It takes lots of effort, dying to yourself, serving one another to stand together to worship to reach everyone here. That's when I say Christ Central is perhaps the one of the most difficult places to preach and to minister in and to be included in, but a beautiful picture of what God is calling us to be as we learn to die to one another, to lift others up, to bear each other's stories, our histories, repent together as if it's my story, and to look to the Lord and dream of heaven that is to come. That is a picture of Revelation 7. When we talked of the freedom in Christ church, the proper celebration is Christ crucified. Do not trivialize the gospel as Dietrich Bonhoeffer warns. Do not cheapen his grace. 
Christ calls a man, he bids him to die. We die with him so we can rise with him. There's cost to following him. To properly celebrate this church is to recognize there's pain, there's suffering, there's truly dying. This is a pathway to our Father, but to ultimately remember our Savior paid for this. Our Savior died on the cross for this. And the wisdom life, truly blessed life, the way of Ecclesiastes is look to the cross, our creator. Look, to, look at us as a creature and find our ultimate hope in Christ, our Lord. So church, this morning I invite you, especially during Black History Month, in the season that you and I are in, in Christ Central Church, come in humble obedience to live out Christ crucified. Recognize who you are and who God is. Surrender, repent, learn, grow, but ultimately find out that even in our failures, God is ever after you. God is chasing us. He is at work in your idol-filled heart. Only Jesus can overcome your heart. This is grace. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? Father, that's our prayer. That in our brokenness, in our state of total depravity, in the place where we need and we want the grace of the Lord, meet us, change us, transform us, so that we can ultimately find Christ our Lord, the Savior, so that we could look to you for our hope, and we could look to you for our salvation, and to look at others around us and love them as you have commanded us. So by our love, the world may ask and see that Christ is the Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.